Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club, and we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are, we are honored to be talking with Mindy Greiling, age 73, who lives in Rosedale, Minnesota. Mindy has an impressive resume as a take charge kind of leader. She served in the House of Representatives in Minnesota for 20 years, where she campaigned to bring more women into political life, into political office. And when her 21-year-old son was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in 1999, Mindy initiated innovative policy and funding for mental health in Minnesota, and since then has served on many boards and councils, including the National Board of NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and currently serves as president of the board of NAMI in Ramsey County. Now, Mindy's talents as a, in storytelling and as a lawmaker are evident in her 2020 book, Fix What You Can, Schizophrenia and a Lawmaker's Fight for Her Son. And Mindy was referred to us by another guest, Beatrice B.B. McGee, and we're grateful for that. So welcome, Mindy, to Women Over 70. Uh, we're delighted to be in conversation with you. Thank you, Catherine and Gail. I love the mission of this program. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, Mindy, uh, you've, you were in uh, the House of Representatives for 20 years. I imagine you didn't grow up as a, as a young girl imagining that you'd spend a, a good portion of your life in politics. But um, so what led you into this uh, political arena? Well, you're right. I certainly didn't expect to be in politics. When I visited the Minnesota Capitol, when I was in fourth grade, we met the male governor and all male legislators. So this was not my plan. But I did think being a typical girl growing up in the 50s and 60s that I needed to be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. So I picked teacher. <laughs> mm -hmm. I loved my third grade teacher and actually thought about being a teacher right from the get-go. And I only did that, though, for five years. I got my BA and my MA in education. And then when I had my own children, I felt called to stay home with them. And I was had the luxury of being home with them for 10 years. Um, and my husband kept saying, I thought I married a teacher. but I wanted." <laughs> and partly I enjoyed being with my children, but also I got active in the community. So I did like president of the cooperative nursery school at president of the PTA. And I was a Girl Scout leader and got active in the League of Women Voters, where I got interested 
in politics. Mm. Still, I never thought of myself as running for office. I was recruited by one of my league friends to be on the school board. And I did that for a couple of terms. And then my senator, state senator, John Marty, who's actually still in the legislature, tried to recruit me to run. I thought about it and I said, no, I don't think I would like to do that. And so I didn't, but I said I would help find somebody. And in the meanwhile, I would chair his campaign. We didn't find anybody and it ended up being being me. So it kind of just happened. And then, so you you first joined the legislature, I think in 1993. Correct. And what was the environment like then for female legislators? We had... Um, more women than there had usually been, but it was still a very small number. And I remember at the time, Secretary of State Joan Grow, oh, yes. a event for all the women elected officials in the legislature, Republicans and Democrats, um, at the, um, I think it was the, the Minnesota Club, and mm-hmm. a place where men usually gathered and made plans and so forth. But she said, we have a plan to have the women meet here. We're here. We're leaders. And then we had all male waiters. (laughs) So it was rather poetic justice (laughs) of the early legislators like um, Senator Linda Berglund and Representative Phyllis Kahn to initiate us. And they told us, we were lucky because when they came and up until just a couple of years before we got here, there weren't even any women's bathrooms in the, mm. in the chamber. The women wow. had to raise their hand, get permission to go to the bathroom, you were in first grade, go out in the hallway, run the gauntlet of lobbyists and use the one, one holer that was in the hallway. And wow. back. So we were lucky because by the time I got there, there were they had have the men's bathroom to great stress on their part, but to make a bathroom for the women. Mm-hmm. Phyllis Kahn, Representative Phyllis Kahn, who was a, a great mentor for me, um, she told me that just watch if two or three women gather in the hallway, men will come by and say, "What are you girls up to? What are you cooking up?" And sure enough, if we ever did that, somebody would come by and say something like that. So that was the environment um, when I first got there. And you, um, when I talked with you earlier, you said that you know part of, one of your one of your uh, missions was to bring more women into into political office, younger women and women of color. Can you tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I went to a conference where they uh, talked about. If women, I think it was Rutgers, if women were less than 40% of an organization, and that would include a place like the Minnesota House or the Minnesota Senate, if they were less than 40%, the institution changed them. But if you got 40% or more of women in an organization, they changed the organization. Uh You had nowhere near 40%, but I kept that factoid in my mind. And then there was a time when Phyllis Kahn and some of us um, calculated how some of the big important votes that the legislature took would have turned out 
if women had been in the majority and mm. the high profile ones like guns and and choice and things like that, if women had been in the majority, they would have turned out differently. There was the Malax Lake Treaty going on at the time and some things that just didn't turn out as well. But if we had more women, we could have changed the organization. Mm -hmm. So I set out when I had helped recruit candidates um, late in the game for, for a few years, but I was never in charge of candidate recruitment. And so when I was asked to do that, when I was uh, a, a minority leader at one time, I decided I was going to find out which were the best seats for being for the candidate to be elected. And then I would recruit women for those seats because those earlier recruitments I was doing were, you know, the desolate districts where no one could want run or no one could win. And so they just wanted somebody to fill the seats so the home candidate would stay home and not help neighboring districts. So women were often recruited for those kind of seats. Mm -hmm. Nope, we're not going to do that. So I, contacted um, Representative Myron Orfield, who now teaches at the Humphrey Institute. And he was very good with facts and figures and maps. And so he figured out for me what would be the most 10 most winnable seats that were open and then the next 10 most winnable seats. So we had 20 rank ordered seats. And I worked with the Women's Candidate Development Coalition, a woman by the name of Shirley Nelson, and we used our contacts all around the state, in the DFL, in the um, women's groups, in local government, anywhere we thought we could find a woman who would be a leader, would be viable, and who we could convince to, to run. And we had to double team them. They were all just like me, didn't want to run, didn't think they would like that. Mm -hmm. I knew better because I had surmounted that and managed to thrive at the legislature. So. We just kept asking and getting other people to ask. And pretty soon we had mostly women running in those seats. And that next year, we became we had the biggest gain in women serving in the Minnesota House um, that there had ever been at any one mm -hmm. time and the highest um, number that had ever served. So we were proud of that. We didn't get to 40%. Mm -hmm. We did start changing the institution and our record actually wasn't surpassed until this last election. And I'm happy to say, finally, there are even more women than the year that I was recruiting. Oh, that's wonderful. You just said that you thrived in the in that role in the legislature. What was it about that and what, what enabled you to thrive? I was very um, people-oriented when I was there. So I didn't always have an easy time. I wouldn't ever say I had an easy time there, but I got to, to kind of like it. And I liked the fact that we could get things done. And I with other legislators, not always women, but often women were the ones that liked to work with others. Um, and I learned how to build coalitions, count votes. You know, you really need to count your votes in the legislature. You can have all the good ideas you want and bring them forward. But if you don't have enough, I can't get anywhere. So I loved to, um, to work with others and, and count votes and look what might be happening. Some of my early 
initiatives. Um, I hadn't learned to count votes so well, and some of them crashed and burned. Mm-hmm. Over time, um, that's how I think I thrived was because I could network and work with others, work on an issue and bring in the public, you know, the public can affect uh, elected officials in a big way. So my people skills are what enabled me to, to yeah, thank you. That so I want you know your um, your life took a critical turn in 1999. Your son was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and you've written a book about it. Fix what you can, um, and you write so compellingly and movingly about your family's struggle to find adequate resources and support for him, which then led you into the um, policy and and funding. And I just I, I was struck by someone who reviewed your book, and she said she said that your book is an indictment of our broken mental health system. Yet sadly, the system isn't broken because it was never built. Mm-hmm. And as a lawmaker, can you ex- explain that to us? Yes, um, the mental health system. There's often people know what should be done. There's a lot of talk about we need community care or we need beds in the hospital or we need affordable housing or we need employment. We need good medicines. All these things we know what we need um, when we close the state hospitals, but we never have built them up. It's fine to say you should have mental health courts to divert people from the criminal justice system today. There's only four in our 87 counties. So if you have, you know what the building blocks are, but you just don't build them, you never finish the system, then um, then you don't have a system. And that's what we ran into with um, trying to advocate for our son. So I was so fortunate, and I write about this uh, quite a bit in the book, that I was a legislator because most people when they don't think things are right or they're advocating for someone that you love who has a serious illness, you pretty much have to focus on that end of things until the person gets healthier or dies or something. And then you have time to advocate. I was able to um, take all my anger and sadness straight to the legislature where we had the brilliant staff who could write legislation and make suggestions of policy changes or where we could best put our funding. And um, so that was that was a huge advantage. And it really comforted me a lot when I wasn't able to do anything about myself. But yes. that title, Fix What You Can, more applies to the mental health system than fixing, fixing my son. Mm-hmm. That was... Um, now, that be- I had always focused on education because I had been a teacher and I had been on the school board and, but, and I've been on the education committees all along. But when Jim got sick, I actually made that an equal priority, trying to build mm-hmm. a system. And were you successful, Mindy? But was, did anything change after that? Well, we made progress, but we still have a very long ways to go. But one of the things I did that I'm most proud of that was using these people skills that I was talking about earlier was we formed a bipartisan Senate House Mental Health Caucus. And so we had Republicans and Democrats, senators and representatives, 
working together to try to figure out what we could do to improve the mental health system. And um, a lot of awareness in legislators. Now it's a topic that lots of legislators work on. But when I first started, I was the only one. There had been Mm. a representative, Gloria Siegel, who had a son with schizophrenia as well, but uh, she had died just before I got to the legislature. And there were some, you know, good-hearted legislators who, you know, threw a little money here and there to the mental health system in her honor. They told me, but um, but there wasn't anybody really speaking out or championing the issue. And if nobody does that, then the issue isn't going to thrive when you get around to spending money or doing policy. So having all these legislators, many of whom did have a personal interest, just like me, but they weren't uh, working on it or talking about it. Um, really helped the the issue. And we had the largest um, funding increase to the mental health system in the history of our state when we had all these legislators. Mm -hmm. And that was actually surpassed the very term after I left the legislature. So I was pleased, you know, they say a mark of good leadership is training in your successor and making sure things continue when you leave. So I was very proud that a second uh, historic funding increase happened the very term after I left. We also worked on policy issues Mm -hmm. that um, were things like, there's no one size fits all for people with mental illness. Mental illness is not a choice. Um, Some people would say, if they choose not to access treatment, then that's all we can do about it. But um, I had some legislation to make the case that some people do not recognize their illness and early intervention is really important to get them off on the right foot. If they're like my son, you know, coming, starting out with, with a serious mental illness. Um, So we passed some policy legislation like that. And also we got the schools involved. So when I chaired the education committee, we were able to put some funding in to the schools so that teachers who often would recognize a student who wasn't doing well, who looked like they were developing a mental illness, but they had nothing, they didn't know what to do about it. But we put funding into school support staff. So teachers could flag certain students, but then refer them on. Of course, teachers have too much to do themselves to deal with health care. So just, um, I want to hear a little bit more about your, your life as a parent of your son who's who dealt with has you dealt with mental illness but I, I wanted to first ask you about you serve you currently serve as president of the board of, of NAMI in Ramsey County and and so what what is the agenda there what are you working on yes well when I finished my book then I had time to figure out what could I do next of course I am still doing things like this program to talk about my book but I wanted to get back into advocacy And I had always worked at the state level or the national level when I was on the National NAMI board. But now in retirement, um, I'm interested in more the local level, the school council, and in this case, the county. And the counties are where the money is spent. And they're the ones who could build the mental health system if if the state would give them the money or if they would raise property taxes enough. So that was my agenda, seeing the county as the path of least resistance 
to do something quickly about the mental health system and about affordable housing. Oh. I had, um, when I retired, I went back to the League of Women Voters and chaired a couple committees there. One was on how the police interact with, in the terms of crises, including mental health crises and on affordable housing. So um, then I went on to the, the local NAMI and there we, there were, there was just a small group of people working. So the county board rarely, if ever heard from them, but yet I thought that's the place we should be advocating. So I recruited more people. Now we have almost a full board, very talented people. And we do things like um, advocate for the for affordable housing with our county board or the legislature last year passed a really good bill for helping people who were going into crisis before they had to be civilly committed. Hopefully they wouldn't ever have to be civilly committed if they got help in time. And even if they didn't recognize they needed it, county mental health workers um, are duty bound by this new law if to help people and really be, be aggressive about mm -hmm. encouraging them. It's a county option. So we are now lobbying our county to opt in because um, otherwise nothing will happen. So it's a powerful place that I really enjoy. And I like to work always again with people. And in this case, people who care about um, a better mental health system and people right. with Thank you. So tell us, Mindy, about your book. Well, the book is um, a perfect example of what your program espouses. We don't just fade away when we turn 65 and, and retire. So you, the best thing about being retired, I think, is you can do a lot of different things and you can learn new things and you have time to learn things you didn't do when you were working in your working life. So I took classes at the Loft Literary Center on how to write a book, how to get those arcs in the chapters and in the whole story. And I joined a writing group. I was invited by one of my friends. Everyone in the group is writing memoir. And so I just um, kept, kept at it. It took me five years. And I'm told that that's actually pretty fast for a memoir because you need to process everything and think about it and you relive some things. And some people say it's awful because you're reliving terrible things again. But I actually found it to be cathartic um, to actually put things in perspective, see that we had made some progress with the mental health system and our son is right now doing really well. And I kept writing the book, hoping for a happier ending, which never happened actually when I was writing the book. Um, but then almost after, as soon as I finished it, um, he started doing better and he's doing wonderfully well right now. And uh, even when he wasn't doing well, he helped with the book. And that was very helpful to get oh, him effective. That's great. So to get, uh, for, just give us some glimpse into what your life was like in the, the last 20 years, um, living with your son, working on his behalf as a parent. As a parent, uh, a lot of people compare working with and living with someone who has uh, serious mental illness as a roller coaster. And I think that's actually a very apt description. Other people 
have called it whack-a-mole. As soon as you <laughs> one problem up, pops another one immediately. So it, it, it has been very hard, which, so I've always been glad that I had other things to do where I could have some solace and success. So I had the legislature. Then when I retired, I was working on the book. I had my things I was doing for the League of Women Voters. Now I have NAMI. Because you really have to, you can't just focus and wallow all the time in um, serious mental illness, or you will be yourself going into a huge depression. Mm-hmm. Very, and a lot of people know this when I speak to audiences and, and Zoom meetings, I guess is what I've been doing. I've had no live book events. Um, they, there's always plenty of people in the, in the group that are dealing with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, clinical depression in their own, if not themselves. So that's one of my lessons is when you speak about whatever it is your challenges are in your family, then you get company because other people will join you. And you really, really need that company because mm-hmm. Israel loves company. Right. And also you're just dealing with so many heartaches that you need all the help you can get. And and um, so about, to say a little bit about how the, the your son's illness affected the family system, family dynamics. That was definitely one of the themes in the book. I wanted, I wrote it wanting people to have empathy for people with mental illness. I wanted to have us decriminalize mental illness. And I wanted people to know that mental illness affects the whole family. So our daughter, by the time Jim was getting sick, had already left home and was in college and in her first jobs. But she still took time, like my husband and I did, to take NAMI family-to-family classes where you can learn about the illness and what it does to people and where you can call them into account and where they can't help what they're doing. And so um, she came away from that because she was mostly with parents. Um, She came away thinking she needed to parent Roger and me. So she's always been quick to try to suggest trips or (laughs) come and have a respite and visit them. Mm -hmm. She's been um, ahead of her time in terms of her adult relationship with us. And, And I worry at times because she herself had thyroid surgery one time, and she didn't even tell us about it until long afterwards, because she thought we had enough on our plate, which to me, that's carrying it overboard. It affected her that way that she uh, didn't mm-hmm. little girl as long as I think she should have been. Um, and then my husband and I, we've had, I write about this in the book too, of some few brutal arguments uh, just because you get so tired and and you wear thin as to what is the right thing to do and and who is enabling and my husband kept bailing Jim out when he overspent money and had um, maxed out credit cards or or um, owed money and that I would provide rides or food or thing you know we both were overcompensating, trying to help him and maybe being counterproductive with his progress for what we were doing. And then we would argue, argue about that. Um, 
our our granddaughter even got involved in being affected because she, of course, it doesn't take long even for a little kid to know that something's amiss with her uncle at in the times when he's not doing well. When he's doing well, I think he could pass for being healthy and most people wouldn't notice the difference. But when he's not doing well, then um, then he can be kind of scary. And she's had some times where she was mm-hmm. Uncle Jim. So she read um, about the time she could read um, chapter books. She read a book about Dorothea Dix and she learned about um, the mental health system. And so she's a big advocate. She's 16 now and she Mm -hmm. wrote um, a report which the kids could pick whatever they wanted to to, uh, write about and developed a PowerPoint and talked to their their class, and she picked mental illness. So mm. here, there's some progress because, um, you know, in my day, when I was picking teacher, nurse, or secretary, I did not talk about my grandmother, who's um, in the book as well, who was in the Rochester State Hospital when I was 10 years old. You know, that was verbatim. We did not did not talk about her. So now it's more open, and but it definitely mental illness affects affects the whole family, and of course it's affected our son too, mm-hmm. his whole whole life. So I was thinking that in 1999, uh, mental illness was uh, was not, that was not it wasn't made public usually. I mean the families kept that almost like a family secret. And I'm wondering if was that the case for you back in 1999? Yes. Well, my grandmother actually lived right across the street from us when I was growing up. So when she left to go to the state hospital, the sheriff came and got her, and my mother made sure my sister and I were not there to see that, which was probably good. But then we had no transition. You know, she was just gone. Her house was empty, and they did tell us she went to the hospital. But we also were told, you know, that was not anybody's business. We should keep that in the family. But our friends knew she wasn't there because we used to run over in her yard and pet the dog and we would run through her house and get water, you know, when we were that thirsty, it was like a second house over there. So they knew and their parents, of course, knew. And it was very awkward because some some of the neighbors tried to grill us, my sister and me, when my parents were there. Mm-hmm we were told we weren't supposed to say much. So we were not, not very comfortable with, with that secrecy. So I wanted to do better for Jim. But the interesting thing is the state hospital in, in Rochester, which is now the prison, federal prison, is, which is often, by the way, what happens to those old state hospitals. Now they're prisons and they have in them basically similar clientele, often people with mental illness, but now they're in prison. Um, But um, there were so many buildings and it was a huge complex, but yet we thought, and I'm guessing every other family that had someone there thought they were the only ones, you know, it didn't compute when you saw the multiple, multiple buildings and Mm. walking around, but somehow you felt lonely in your secrecy that you must be the only one. So I think the world is much better now for people acknowledging uh, mental illness. There's still plenty of families who try to keep it quiet. 
uh, unfortunately, even in NAMI, they, they are with the best of intentions, I think, trying to preserve the future for their children um, by not having the world know mm-hmm. serious mental illness like the world knows about Jim right now. But I personally think that Jim is better off with us not being secretive about his illness, not being ashamed of him. It's just an illness. And he talks freely about it too. And I think that's um, a healthier way to tackle this. Yeah, I, I'd certainly uh, support that. I'm a, I would assume that you, I was going to ask you, what kind of response are you getting uh, to the book and to the speaking that you're doing now about the book? I am getting a wonderful response from other families dealing with serious mental illness. They say, you have written my life. You know, I could just change the words. I actually heard from one woman who lives near Como Park. And I write in the book about walking around Como Lake and with our son or with my husband. And it's just our go-to place. I just walked there this morning with a friend even though we live in Roseville and um, that she said, I live right there. I go around that Lake every single day. And my son has schizophrenia and we're, you wrote about my life. You nailed it completely. Uh-huh. That's what I'm hearing from a lot of families who are dealing with serious mental illness. And it's not just the Gryling story. It's everyone's story. Everybody's different, but, but this illness is, takes a lot of tragic turns that you feel like must be only you suffering like this, but it mm-hmm. happens to many people. So that's one response. The families with serious mental illness feel that they really can commiserate and it's a catharsis for them to read it. Mm-hmm. And then I've heard the, uh, the other main group are people who aren't familiar with living with schizophrenia and they are, amazed at the things that we go through. And they, and even people that know us tell us they had no idea, even though they kind of thought they were keeping track of what was going on with Jim, because we've been pretty open about it. They said we didn't really have a clue as mm-hmm. the depth of what this means. Those are kind of the two, the two big groups. But, and then I'm also have a lot of follow-up calls or emails from people who would like to talk and, and uh-huh. they, what they're going through. So Mindy, um, I know you, you retired at, you were eight years ago, you were 65, you've written this uh, book that is, is touching the lives of so many people. What else for you? Uh, what do you? What's on your horizon? And one of the questions we always ask is, do you think about aging? What do you think about aging? How do you think about it? Well, I definitely think about aging. I uncovered all my flowers and pruned everything and raked up everything um, uh, a couple of days ago. And I came in the house and told my husband, I said, I can feel my age. (laughs) (laughs) I am worn out. And uh, I went to bed and read a book. And so, um, so physically, I feel I can certainly tell my body is aging. And I'm okay with that because I feel... I'm really healthy anyway for my for my age, uh, but mentally I don't feel any different. Um, I just I remember reading a book long ago called "And Ladies of the Club." I don't know if you either of you read that one. 
Mm-hmm. About a woman who I think she was about eighty when she started reading uh, writing it, and it was her, a true story. And she wrote about the day she graduated from college, and then every decade of her life and her girlfriends' lives after that, and then one by one as they died. And um, her message all along was, "I don't feel any different than the day we all graduated from college," and that's how I feel. I feel. Any, mentally, I could do anything. So I'm really enjoying being the president of NAMI Ramsey County, and I'm working on family history, ancestry, and I feel like I hope I live long enough to get a lot of that done, but I like it that it's totally open-ended, so I will never get done. Mm-hmm. No way I'm ever going to get done, and someone else can carry on when I get done, but I'm leaving good records, and I feel like the sky is the limit. Um, My mother lived to be 91 and I'm 73, as you said. So I feel like I have a long time to go. And actually she could have lived longer if she hadn't had a big fall. Um, And so I don't plan to fall. And therefore I figure (laughs) 20 or 30 years where I can work on things that involve my mind and not not Mm -hmm. physical body. And you can get a lot of help with those physical things. We have a, a cleaning service now that we started about a year ago. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I have all that extra time. <laughs> I never like to clean anyway. Gail, before we close, do you have a question or anything that you'd like to cover? I, I just want to say to you um, that really, Mindy, uh, I've been silent this whole time because your your story about schizophrenia is similar, not the same as my story with my son. Ah. And so I've just been listening to you and it's so good to hear all the work you've been doing and the the strides that have been made. He was diagnosed in 1977. And so then there were, they didn't even know what it was that we were dealing with. And so it's, it's, um, you're, it's great to hear that you, you have made this such an open conversation for other people to say, yes, she knows what I'm talking about. Well, thank you. And, you know, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness hasn't been, they've only been around about 40 years. So they're, (laughs) I know it's just shocking to think how recently we've even been addressing the topic of mental health. And by you now sharing about your son, that makes, even though there's three of us here, you are now, we're a typical, a typical group that I talk with because there's several people who are dealing with mental illness in their families and often in schizophrenia as well, or bipolar disorder. If you all the mental illnesses, I maintain that everyone's affected in some way, shape or form, or else they're liars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. (laughs) Totally. Well, Mindy, thank you so much. This has been an extremely um, informative and uh, helpful conversation with you. And uh, we appreciate your, your, um, as as Gail said, the open conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine and Gail. I've 
um, loved talking with you. And again, I think this program is wonderful. I hope you are doing this for the next 20 or 30 years. <laughs> we, uh, we have plans to do so. Yes. We <laughs> Good. So thank you. And, and listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.